Do you ever think about the children in your state who are currently in foster care? Here in Florida, there are about 19,000 children living in foster care. That's a lot of kids. And in that group, there are about 500 children who have no identified families. Can you imagine how scary and lonely that must be? To be a child with no family at all, and only the government to try to take care of you and keep you safe. There are a lot of different situations that can lead to that. But whatever happened, it's no fault of the child. They didn't ask to be born into a family of addicts, or criminals, or abusers, or maybe just someone who didn't want them. They're already starting off life with a disadvantage. It's not fair. My guest today, Samantha, learned about the foster care system kind of by surprise. She and her husband, Jeremy, were living their lives, and they had three young children of their own, which kept them pretty busy. They were a happy family. They didn't plan to suddenly be dealing with the foster care system, or more specifically, a process called family placement. And it all started with an unexpected phone call about a baby. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Can you give us a quick summary of Hannah? 
I understand. She's your sister-in-law, your husband's sister. Yes. Yeah. Hannah is my husband's younger sister. They were raised in the same household and have the same mother, but different fathers. Hannah growing up was always kind of like a little bit of a a bad child. She is kind of deceivious and was prone to lying for just kind of silly things. Um, but as she got into high school and into her teenage years, she definitely started to get into substance abuse and the lying kind of veered more towards negative and destructive behaviors. So she got into a lot of trouble with school, was never able to get her license or anything like that. And so that was kind of just um, really something that she struggled with the substances from an early age. I know a lot of teens go through periods like that, mm-hmm. but you know, you kind of hope they mature out of it, but it sounds like it kind of became a life trend. Yeah. It never was, it never seemed to phase out at any point. Yeah. It definitely, if anything, just continued to get worse and it was kind of one of those difficult things where you see somebody, you know, continuing to make poor choices and go down a path that you know is not going to lead to anything super positive. When all this started, your oldest was in kindergarten. Can you yes. just d- describe who, who was your family at that time? So me and my husband, Jeremy, we have three children. Our oldest, Jamie, was f- is five at the time. Um, we have a younger daughter who is three. Maya, and then we have a youngest, Silas, who just turned one. Three little kids. Yeah, three little ones. <laughs> and this was in the spring, and you were at a kindergarten graduation. Just can you tell us what happened that day? We were actually all standing out in line out front of my son's elementary school waiting to get into a kindergarten graduation, um, which we were all excited about. My dad was there with us um, and I got a phone call from an unknown number. And I actually don't usually answer those, but I was in a good mood for whatever reason, just picked it up. And it was Hannah, my sister-in-law, and she was calling to ask if we would consider taking in her five-month-old daughter while she went to detox and rehab. Her daughter, Ariana, had ended up in the care of the state and she needed somewhere to go. They had had a state meeting and decided that Jeremy and I would be the best choice in the family without having to move on towards out of family care. I know you guys are very family oriented, but what was that discussion like between you and Jeremy, did you guys just immediately decide to do it? I mean, yes. I think as the people we are, we both really love children and are very caring. So, of course, like, regardless, there's a baby who needed a place to live. Of course, yeah, we'll take her. I mean, we don't even have a vehicle that can accommodate an entire family that large. But yeah, we just felt like, of course, I mean, there's a baby in need. And it's family, regardless of what's going on. Yeah, I would think anyone who knows about a need like that with a baby would want mm-hmm. to help in some way. And in this case, especially because it's family. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, you have a niece who has nowhere to live. <laughs> what are the considerations you had to think about in taking? Because you already had one baby in the family. Mm-hmm. What did you have to consider? in making this decision? 
I remember the biggest things was one, the vehicle, because I mean, we only had a five seater vehicle. So then if we were to take on another child, we would have to take two vehicles everywhere we went, which was is difficult in itself. Also with childcare, that was really a consideration. Um, we had our three kids in with a nanny and she had two of her own children as well. And I don't know many childcare people who you can just spring on like, Hey, do you have room for an extra infant? Like that, that's a lot to take on. And so that was a really big thing that we had to consider. But I mean, ultimately, it was just a baby who needed somewhere to go. So how do you say no to that? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm the same way. Yeah. So what was the process? You told Hannah yes verbally on the phone. And what mm-hmm. happened next? On the phone, I was like, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, Exactly. How do you say no to that? Um, she said that a caseworker would probably be in touch within the next day or so to kind of give us more information. And so, yeah, we had those just kind of questions over that night. The next morning, I was actually had just gotten into work, logged in. Um, so it was just after eight o'clock and I got a phone call from that caseworker and things moved very fast. She confirmed that we would, one, we were willing to confirm that we actually, you know, had a a home to live in with enough space. And then she asked like basic background information and questions. She collected our personal information. So they ran background checks on us and did things. And then she was told me that someone, uh, inspector would be by the house in two hours <laughs> to come check the home to see if it would qualify for a state home. And so. Yeah, that was crazy. So then my husband, he got off work and ran home to clean up. Not that we were super concerned about it, but it's a little nerve, you know, nerve wracking having a state inspector come into your house when you have three young kids and you just left the morning not planning on anyone walking in. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if family decides to come over, you know, no big deal. But this is actually an inspection. Yeah. And we didn't really even know what they were looking for we definitely did not have a bed or anything for ariana or any like extra items but they went ahead they did the inspection it was probably just before noon i got a second call from the caseworker and it's basically saying like cool everything's cleared off when can you come pick her up unbelievable yeah a whirlwind of activity less than 24 hours earlier none of this was even thought of no we we didn't even know anything about it so you passed the inspection obviously it seems like they're trying to kind of fast track rush this through did you get that impression like how thorough was the inspection well so the inspection was mostly them just checking to make sure that it's generally clean like a general cleanliness of the home there's no like infestations there's no like animal urine or feces in the home there's running water and functional toilets and a fridge that is stocked with food is really what they check for like bottom line is what they need but yeah it was very rushed because um she had Ariana had actually been in a state nursery for three days at that point. So they were desperate to find a home for her to go into. So you get a phone call saying, okay, when can you come and pick up the baby? What do you do? I mean, I had to finish up what I was doing there at work as quickly as I could. And I rushed home and met with my husband and we got down to one car and drove downtown to the Department of 
youth and families. And we walked in and they just handed me a baby. <laughs> really? They're like, you're, you're here for Ariana. And we're like, yeah. Okay. So I have this little baby in my arms and they had a diaper bag that they gave us. And then we had to sign, give them our IDs, signed like two different things. And there was like a little real quick papers and they're like, all right, someone will be in touch in a few days. Thanks. We actually, I had to pause. I was ask them for a car seat. I was like, do you have a car seat for her? I don't have one or didn't bring it. I uh, wasn't plan. I'm sure if you were planning on picking up a child in a foster situation or something like that, maybe that was something you'd have uh, planned for, but we didn't have anything. For an infant, you had a, a one-year-old. Would they use the same kind of car seat or is there a different they one? Did. for? Yeah. Yeah. So the two infant car seats, the ones you can like pull out of the car and tote around. And you said they gave you a diaper bag. Were there any supplies? Did you have anything like diapers or anything? The diaper bag had about five or six diapers in there. It had like a pack of wipes that had been used like once or twice. It had a white onesie in there with like a basic like baby blanket, um, a bottle and a can of formula that was partially used, but they told me, they're like, there's this formula, but we think this is causing, like, upsetting her stomach. We haven't been able to figure out what works best for her, but this is what we've been feeding her. That was it. <laughs> I'm just hearing you tell this, I'm feeling overwhelmed because yeah. it just happened so quickly. I mean, a lot of people might think, you know, should we foster? And you might have weeks or months of conversations and mm -hmm. research and preparation and everything. And here you are the next day yeah, with a new baby. It's three o'clock. We were driving home back to our apartment at, with Ariana in the car. We were just kind of like mind blown. What, like, what just happened? You had mentioned that when you got back home, you'd noticed that Ariana was coughing a lot and you suspected some kind of illness. Do they give you any kind of medical history on that? We did not. We were told that she was seen by a state physician, but that was it, really. But yeah, she had a very uh, concerning, like it was an alarming cough, very like hoarse and like wet sounding. And it would go in fits. And to think about it, she was a very small baby at this time. She was five months old, probably about the size of like a three-month-old baby at the time. And so very small and frail and just these awful coughing fits. And, she, you know, her face would turn all bright red. So we actually ended up taking her into that urgent care that night. We just wanted to, didn't know what was going on. Wanted to check all the babies. And it's not like you guys are brand new parents. You've been through this a few times. Kids get sick. Yeah. You weren't just panicking like, what do we do? You know, you were experienced. So that was good. Let's back up a little bit. How did little Ariana end up in the custody of the state? The following week, when we actually were assigned a state caseworker, she came over to our house to introduce herself and do what we would learn was a, a regular monthly meeting with her, where she would come in and do a home inspection, give us any new information on the case, ask us all this information about Ariana, how she was doing. Um, and it was really just information time to pass information back and forth. So what she told us was that Hannah and her husband, Lance, Ariana's parents, they had been living in like an RV trailer and 
had been on the run from Idaho police for the last few months. Lance had some previous convictions and issues with the law over in Idaho or in Washington state just over the border. They had moved over here shortly after they had had Ariana. They had previously had been sober and sobriety was actually a very important thing in their life from the last time I had seen them. They had started using again and had really quickly gone down a negative path and we're just getting deeper and deeper. So when, when they went from Idaho to Washington, that was, I assume it was outside of the guidelines of his parole. Yes, that broke his parole. And that's why he was on the run is because he was in Washington versus Idaho. Where were they living? They were living um, on some family's property in this uh, RV. Did the family know that they were avoiding police detection? Or do you know if they... I don't know. It's, that's, that's not something you tell people, I guess, when you're looking for a place to stay, I guess. Right. I, it's all family. And it, well, a lot of it was on Lance's family. So I would assume they would have to be somewhat informed. But I don't know what led to those decisions and how it got to that point. But I think ultimately came down to Hannah and Lance having a baby and nowhere to live and his family stepping in to just provide a roof over their head. And you said they were they were actually dealing in drugs in some way while they were there? Yes. In the um, RV itself, there was production or cooking of various drugs. I don't know very much about illegal substances or drugs or anything, really. Um, I don't either, except I'm picturing the RV from Breaking Bad where they were cooking exactly. meth inside, you know? Yeah. I'm probably not nearly that sophisticated. Actually, guaranteed not nearly that sophisticated. Um, but yeah, definitely was the manufacturing of, of, yeah, of drugs there and the use of them in a very small, confined space. I don't know much about it either, but I know in that production, I saw them always wearing gas masks, you know, to protect their lungs from breathing in that stuff. And you've got a five-month-old baby living in that environment. It's no wonder she came to you with a bad cough. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And there was no real reason for the cough other than just the exposure. So what happened with them? Lance had stolen a truck in a vehicle and while under the influence was driving and hit like a telephone pole while driving in the vehicle disabling the vehicle this was all told by witnesses who saw this happen they were in a house across the street and so they saw him hit this pole disable the truck he got out they said he looked kind of confused paused for a second reached back into the vehicle and pulled out the infant carrier with Ariana in it. And then he began to run away from the scene. Then as he's, he's gone a couple, a few yards, stopped again. He said, said he paused there for a while. And then he set the carrier down, baby carrier there on the side of the road. And then he took off and ran. And so the, the witnesses, they were kind of shocked by this whole scene, had already been on the phone with authorities reporting what they were seeing. Once they were sure, like they couldn't see Lance anymore and sure was safe, they went out and retrieved the baby and 
the baby carrier and they held on to her until the police came or the authorities and took Ariana away. But at that point, no one knew who Ariana was. So she was just an unknown baby in the state care for three days. Hannah was kind of MIA at this time. No one really knew where she was or what was going on. And Hannah's grandmother got concerned enough in realizing that no one knew where Ariana was that she called the police. And then somehow they were able to track Hannah down and then they pulled her into the office and confirmed identity. And that's when they had that meeting where they were deciding, well, obviously we need to decide temporary care for the child. Hannah was also under the influence in the meeting, admittedly so as well. So there was that immediate need to place a child with somebody. Because she was in, uh, it's called the Vanessa Behan Crisis Nursery, which is just like a volunteer-led program in our town. And it's a wonderful program, but they have huge numbers of infants that come through at all different stages of neglect and abuse and health ranges. And I mean, these babies are just kind of cared for by the volunteers there and passed around until they can figure out what to do. To me, it's just it's just astounding to be in that kind of a mindset of Hannah, where your husband's gone, don't know where he is, your baby is gone, missing for three days, and it's someone else that calls the police to find out where the baby is, rather than her own mother. I have to imagine there's definitely got to be like shame and guilt in that. Like you don't want to call and be like, hey, my husband left my baby on the side of the road. Do you know where she is? But I, I would definitely think the the use of the drugs at the time and the level of intoxication played super heavily into it. So, I mean, neither one of them, I would believe, were thinking clearly or were straight minded. So Lance is gone. He's kind of out of the picture on the run for three months. Mm-hmm. Hannah's going into rehab, and that's when you got that phone call. Yeah, well, so the original pitch, she was going to go into detox first and then go to um, an inpatient rehab. But going through that whole process, she has to go through and get admitted into these places and accepted and also get um, her insurance to cover them. And there's a lot of steps that the individual has to do on their own that when you're someone who's in the throes of addiction you're not as put together to necessarily get those things done in a timely manner so yeah the the idea was she was going to go straight into those things but it did take a few months before she got any kind of treatment and then at that point it started with outpatient how much of that backstory did she tell you when she first called you did you know any of that none nothing Did you wonder why, when she told you Ariana's been in state custody for three days, you must have wondered, okay, what's the story there? Or did she even tell you that? Uh, Well, no, we knew we didn't know how long she had been in the state custody. So all of this happened. We got the call on a Wednesday. And on Monday, Hannah's grandma and my husband's grandma, um, she had sent jeremy a text or something saying that they didn't know where ariana was 
but we didn't have much contact with that side of the family just because of the lifestyle choices and things. We had a young family of our own, so we had pretty clear boundaries there. So we knew kind of something was going on, but had no idea that it was anything as serious as it really was. So now you have another little human living in your home. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, you you wanted to keep Ariana in a safe, nurturing environment while Hannah was detoxing. Mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering about the stress that this added to your family. Like visitation. Was Hannah allowed to come and see the baby sometimes? Yes. So visitations were allowed. That was something that got set up almost immediately. That's one of the first things the state does coordinate with the parents because it is their parental right to have you know visitations and see their child that does not come to our house or anything like that we actually aren't allowed to share where our location with hannah and lance more of just kind of a protection thing for the child so what the state does is there's these different facilities around town that are set up specifically to hold and host visitations between parents and children and these families that are split up. So it does create like a neutral zone where both parties can come. And depending on the level of monitoring that is necessary, they have staff there that can facilitate different parts. So there is the supervised visits, there's monitors visits, um, and then there's just observed visits as well, depending on the level the state needs to be involved in that. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, CookUnity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. A while back, I added a small thing to my nightly routine. Just before going to bed, I jot down a few tasks on a sticky note, things I want to get done the next day. So when I'm waking up the next morning, I already sort of have an agenda. It's just a little habit that's made a big difference for me. It's kind of the same as taking care of your gut, because it's also little, but your whole body depends on it for overall health. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic gives you positive impacts for your gut as well as your heart. And it's a really easy routine. Just pop two capsules of Seed DSO-1 in the morning. And all I can tell you is I feel great. 
I'm not a scientist, but I know that having an optimal gut bacteria level promotes better health in the rest of my body, including my skin. And the clinical trials and research mean the data is there to back that up. DSO-1 is completely free of sugar, soy, gluten, and peanuts, and it's vegan. It's got no chemical coatings, and it doesn't even require refrigeration, so it's easy to use when I'm traveling to a podcasting conference. Try it out for yourself and see how it impacts your gut health. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. The state would send a driver out to pick up Ariana, wherever we happen to be at that given time. Um, They would come pick her up, take her to the visitation, and then bring her back to us wherever we happen to be. So you really didn't have direct interaction with Hannah during that at all then? None. No, I, yeah, no, hadn't seen her. How was Ariana's health after that initial, when you thought she was kind of sick with a cough, did did that improve? It did. It took a few months throughout the rest of the summer, really, probably the end of 2017, the summer of 2017. She was back more to a much more healthy infant and you wouldn't really notice anything different. We had um, nebulizers and albuterol treatments that we did multiple times a day and that drastically changed things for her. It was, it's really cute actually to have like a little six month old baby who would get it. She'd like smile and be happy because she could breathe when she did the treatments. You'd think like kids would hate it or like not be cooperative, but she obviously immediately correlated the benefits and she really enjoyed her treatments. So that made a huge difference. But I mean, we kept her in our bedroom at night, sleeping in her crib there too, because she'd get into coughing fits and we'd get up and she'd be purple (laughs) because she just would struggle to recover from that coughing to be able to breathe again. And so we'd have to either go like into the bathroom with the steam or go outside with the cold air, something to kind of change the air density to kind of shock our system back into breathing. This is overseen by Child Protective Services. How closely did they monitor your care of Ariana? 
they would come to the house once a month and physically have eyes on the child in the environment. I spoke with the caseworker pretty frequently because Ariana was a ward of the state. So I, although she, I was taking care of her and she was in my possession, I had no no rights over her. So if we went to the doctor, I had to have permission from the caseworker because they had to sign all medical documents and do all of those other parts. Um, so there was a lot of communication. It's a lot of voicemails back and forth. It's incredibly difficult to get in touch with a caseworker because she's incredibly busy. Yeah, they're overloaded too, right? Oh, yeah. She's so overloaded, always like working on a backlog. Sorry, I got this, this, and this done. Here you go. But I mean, on the day-to-day, not a whole lot. They can at any time just come by unannounced. And that's how it should be, really, for the protection of the child. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's expensive to have a child in your family. You mentioned car seat, but I mean, there's a whole lot of other stuff, food and clothing and diapers. And I mean, diapers can be like another car payment, you know? Uh, Yes. Yeah. But foster parents get paid some kind of a stipend or you get reimbursed for that, right? Correct. If you were a foster parent, we were not foster parents, though. We were family placement. So as family placement, we didn't qualify for any additional benefits. And Ariana, as a ward of the state, was an independent. Like, we couldn't claim her as a dependent of us because she's a dependent of the state. So she was covered under the state for her health care and her health insurance. And she qualified for WIC, which is Women's Infants and Children, which is a program in Washington State, where she would get coupons to where we could get formula and baby food, and then bigger, like more foods when she got older. But that was really it. Otherwise, it was on us to take care of it. And that's because your family. I guess the assumption is that if your family, you're kind of obligated to take care of another family member. So you get all the supervision and regulations, but without, but it's all at your expense or, or the majority of it's at your expense. Correct. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like you said, there's that obligation to it, but I think it also goes to prevent families from profiting from caring for each other's children in a sense as like, that's a really backwards twisted way to look at it. But I think the state has to come at it from that point of view, unfortunately. You couldn't have like a family set up where you're like, oh, well, I'll just give my mom custody and then she'll get paid to have the kid. Yeah. Unfortunately, I know some people would think that way. Yeah. Right. You mentioned at one time that some family members kind of resented you for being a good parent for Ariana. Where would that come from? Yeah. So one of the things that normally you would never have to consider when raising a child is like titles. So we're raising an infant who is learning how to speak. She's learning how to make connections. She's learning how to ask for help. I'm learning like who the people around her are and like those, those basic bonds in families. So she's also being raised with our children. So they call me and Jeremy mom and dad and we treat them like our children. Ariana, we wanted to treat her exactly the same as our children because that's such a, a fragile age and the brain is going through so much development that, I mean, any lack of connection or like trauma that can happen then can really set someone back 
lifelong. And we'd never want a child to have some kind of complex. I just tried to put myself in a situation where if I was a child growing up in a home surrounded by siblings who could call those adults caring for us mom and dad, but I would be redirected to call them uncle or aunt or some other kind of form of care or title, that would be really confusing, I feel. And so we really, really thought it was important for Ariana's ultimate well-being that she be raised just like she were in any other home. So she grew up calling me mom and Jeremy dad, and our other children were her siblings. And it was really upsetting to some other family members to hear Ariana call us mom and dad. And they didn't understand the reasoning behind it and felt it was more of us just being overstepping bounds versus caring about the long-term effects of the child. So yeah, we had an incident where family had come over. Um, Hannah's family came over for dinner and Ariana really was at the very, like just started speaking. So she could say like mama or dada or like, hi, those kinds of things. And they were holding on to her and I walked by and so she said, mama and like reach out to me. And I took her and they were like, oh no, Auntie Sam. And I then corrected him. I was like, no, I'm mom for her. Like right now, that's just is her reality. And they left. It was very upsetting. Um, so it's just difficult to think of it from all different perspectives. Cause I also agree. Like I don't want to step on anyone's toes. I'm not trying to, you know, take Ariana from Hannah or take that title of mom from her, but that is the role that I am playing. You're the one that stepped in and took the baby when she was asking for it. And, you know, the other, from, from Ariana's perspective, she's calling you mom, but then she's being, she's visited by this other person who she also was supposed to call mom. That had to just add another layer of confusion to it. There was definitely along the visitation, it was confusing. It was, it was complex because as Ariana aged, her reactions changed. Obviously she becomes more perceptive. She understands more of what's going on. She realized she's being taken away to something else and then coming back. But it's something that she also knows no one else in the family does. We were always very open about talking about Hannah and Lance and it was Mama Hannah and Daddy Lance. And we were very honest with the discussion of that they just made poor choices. And so Mommy Hannah has to go and do some work on herself so that she could get into a place where she could take care of her daughter or herself. And that Daddy Lance made really poor choices and now he's in prison for a few years. You know, it's the other interesting situation here is that Ariana and, and your youngest child were pretty close in age. So I'm guessing they probably learned a, a lot of things at the same time, like, you know, walking, talking, potty training. Was that, is that how that played out? All of it. Uh, Silas and Ariana, they, so they're both 2016 babies, literally 42 weeks apart. So, I mean, it just barely could have been possible for them to be <laughs> biologically related, but... They were very, very close from the beginning. If you've 
never seen two like infants and toddlers interact with each other like in a genuine way it is the best joy ever like they create their own little language and they play games and communicate and support each other and just like the most it's just so heartwarming and wonderful like i absolutely loved it Having two children that young at the same time or having twins, like I would never wish that on anyone. That is, it is literally twice as hard in every possible way. But that relationship and seeing just that bond that happens between the babies is so, just so magical. They really were uh, connected at the hip. They, we had our bigs. So we had Jamie and my, our bigs and our littles. <laughs> Our Silas and Ariana. <laughs> Did it seem like Hannah was making progress in rehab? Unfortunately, no. She would go in and out of a lot of programs. That first six months to a year, she really tried um, her best to get by with qualifying through outpatient programs and doing meetings and things like that to try and qualify to get, you know, to be sober. And meet the state requirements. But yeah, ultimately, she she did really struggle to finish any individual program. So you started planning on adopting Ariana. What did that process look like? Yeah, so November of 2018. So it had been about 18 months since the case had been opened. Um, and Hannah had, at that point, failed to finish any program. And so the state went ahead and filed for termination or petitioned the court to terminate parental rights. And they provided us with an adoption attorney. We had written up an adoption agreement to Hannah and to present to Hannah and Lance, basically saying that we would be taking over custody. It would be open adoptions. And then there was stipulated um, like visitations throughout that and communications of progress and things as far as that goes with a typical adoption that was all presented to the court. And so this is all in the juvenile court system at this point. And so the state is presenting this to them, saying we want to take this to the state court to actually move forward with filing. And at that point, Hannah and her attorney were it kind of just got Hannah into taking it more seriously. At that point, she agreed she went into an inpatient program. And that just kind of started another process of her going in and out of programs. It sounds like she she was trying. It's not like, like she doesn't want to lose her child. No, she didn't. But the the grip of addiction was just too strong. And she'd been that way for too long. It really was because a lot. When it came down to her, like getting kicked out of programs, it was very silly, minuscule things. Like it wasn't even necessarily like that she was just continuing to use. It was her just continuing to disregard rule, like house rules repetitively. And like, well, if you can't follow the rules, you can't be here. <laughs> it almost sounds like self-sabotage. It is, it is very, very much self-sabotage. I mean, it got one point where she was in doing really well. She had actually completed an inpatient program and was in what's called an Isabella house. So it's kind of like a, a recovery house for moms. It's not, not a halfway house. They still have all their programs and it's, it's still full care, but she lives there. It's just kind of a little step down. 
and she was doing very well there and had actually had gotten on track and was getting overnight visitations with Ariana at that point there at that home. She came back one day with a lighter in her pocket and got kicked out because you can't come back into the house with a lighter. <laughs> was she not allowed to even smoke at all? Or did that indicate use of cocaine or what was the lighter or what was the reason for not having a lighter. I think they were completely sober. I don't think they were allowed to use, they weren't allowed to have any lighters on premise. And so like just kind of silly things when it really comes down to it, which is really frustrating on our side because we want to see finality to this. We just want, you know, the, the constant like up and down or like maybe are we, are we mom and dad? Are we not mom and dad? Or, or is this going to be like, are we looking five years in the future? Or are we looking like two years in the future? You know, and just really trying to find some kind of consistency and what witnessing someone just do, have that self sabotage and make those silly or seemingly silly mistakes that hold them back is, is really, really disheartening and really difficult. This all kind of culminated in the spring of 2020. And of course, that's just as COVID was starting. What happened then? Spring of 2020. So again, that, so that had been two years after we, this state had initially brought petitioned for termination. Early 2020, the court agreed. They said, okay, I'm sorry, enough is enough. Uh, you have yet to, again, complete a full program. We are going ahead and moving this forward to the state court and moving forward with termination. And what that just means is that's just going to start another court proceeding. It doesn't mean anything's final by any means. It just moves at the next step up the ladder. So that was really encouraging for us just to kind of see that end in sight. Because how long had it at that point, how long had you had Ariana? Three years. Okay. Yeah. So we'd had her for three years in our home. Um, she definitely was part of our family and, you know. Yeah, that was her, that was the family that she knew. Yeah, exactly. It was, that's where we were. And so we were looking forward to going into that season and battling, just starting that next step of the process. And then COVID happened and lockdown. And as many of us know, like, so the court systems had to close. They had to remove like most non-emergent things off of the dockets to try and get like priority cases through during those times. So they were trying to go through and fig really kind of prioritize things. And that went down even so like the Department of Youth and Children was CPS was doing the same kind of thing, looking through their files, trying to whittle it down to a more manageable caseload within, you know, new health constrictions. And then even with Hannah's inpatient program that she was in. So there were, I don't know how many women were living there at the time, but they had to close their doors and they were doing some kind of fast tracking of progress. And I don't know if they were just like, dumping lessons really fast on these ladies or what really was going on. But Hannah was actually able to complete a six-month program in four months prior to that next court date. So then since they're looking at things that are emergent, they're like, well, so she did act, she did 
complete a program. So there's no reason we can't bring it to the state court now because now she's complying and it'll just get denied. So all in all, they decided just to go ahead and give Ariana back to Hannah with some loose oversight. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club. A daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book. Listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into The Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, Relax and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29 year old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists. So go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Yeah, and it was and it was just quick. I have over a phone call. It all happened very 
you know, one phone call. Hey, this is what's happening. We're going to do this. We're going to have a call in two weeks with all the different parties involved, like all the different attorneys um, and workers. And we're going to figure out, you know, a transition back process. It's not healthy to take a child and just all of a sudden pick them up and move them to a different place. Like now this is your home. Typically they try to kind of like slow you go into it, you know, start with weekend visits and maybe be two nights and then it'll be three nights and then it'll be four nights. And just so then over a few months, they kind of just gradually start living at that new home more and more with the constraints of COVID. We couldn't have <laughs> her leaving and going into an unknown home with unknown people and then coming back over and over and over. So unfortunately it was just a pick her up, take her. How did your other children handle that? Uh, I mean, it was just heartbreaking really for everyone, especially like I said, we had been very honest and like open with our kids that, you know, bad choices had been made and that's why we were in this situation. And so they had, you know, they had a loose understanding of like, responsibility and who was making right choices and what a safe home would be. So they really were upset because they also, they didn't agree. They didn't think she was going to be safe and they didn't want their sister to go and not see her again, but to go and to, you know, be in a bad environment. It, it was really, really difficult. I know you'd mentioned that Jeremy, your husband feels guilty just because it's his side of the family causing the issues. Was he able to work through that? Because obviously it's not, not his fault. No, not at all. Um, but that is, yeah, that was a really difficult thing for him to overcome. Even like, even from the beginning of the process, I mean, this was so stressful and taxing on us and like the whole family, the whole three years as wonderful as it was. Um, and so it was in those like difficult times where it would be affecting me and my mental health. And he would be like, I'm just so sorry. He's like, I'm sorry that my sister, you know, made these choices or, you know, I'm sorry that my family's crazy and is, you know, treating us this way. And he, um, growing up, like I said, they didn't, there wasn't a lot of supervision. And so he did a lot of raising of his sister. And so, him having that like responsibility over her and then just to see her grow up and continue to make poor choices. It has been really hard for him to kind of overcome. He had to, you know, except that that wasn't his responsibility. Uh, I can see that now though, the way you phrase that it's like he partially raised her. And now it turns out that as her brother, he was a bad parent in some way. Right. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Have you had any contact at all with Hannah or Ariana since that day that she left? We have not. No. And that's probably one of the most difficult parts. Well, gosh, that and that's a complicated question to even answer. No, we haven't seen her at all. I would love to see her. But that also is incredibly terrifying. Like... I just, I don't know. The last time I saw her, she gave me a hug and kissed me and said, bye, mommy. I love you. <laughs> like, 
uh, now, like I would just be coming into it as a different role, which would be difficult for me at this point because it's gone. Now it's been three years. I think that's a lot more difficult now. Originally, of course, I would have wanted to, and we did want to, and there was supposed to be visit, like, uh, we actually had a schedule of like video visits that were going to be part of like that transition process. But Hannah, I mean, once Hannah got Ariana back, she cut off all ties. I've been completely blocked from everything since then. She has always just kind of perceived me as a threat to her motherhood, which I understand. Like, I really do understand. I mean, it's. it does. I can understand it, too. I mean, you were taking you were starting legal action to take her child into your family. Yeah, I did. And, and you know, and then I was the better mom for X period of time, which is, which is difficult. I get. How old is Ariana now? She is six. And what do you know about Hannah? Does she live somewhere local to you? They do. They are still in the same town. Although I'm blocked and haven't had like any direct communication as family even with like the complex family dynamics and we have heard things from others. And I do know that uh, there was a long period between 2021 and 2022 where Hannah and Ariana were homeless. They were living in the different shelters around town. And so that's extremely difficult to know. <laughs> and just there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I mean, even if, you were to call and say something it's not you can be homeless and not get your parental rights taken away like that doesn't mean that you don't deserve to have your child it's just difficult to know when you could provide something more or better but i mean gosh even that's complicated though too because i I mean i don't know i really i want the best for them i i want hannah to succeed and i want her to be a wonderful mother but I also want Ariana. <laughs> so, Have you thought about how you would handle it if you just ran into her in public somewhere, like like at the grocery store? I, I do. I think about it all t- or when I'm dri- I think about it a lot when I'm like driving through town because I drive through parts of town where I know they probably are or are likely to be. And yeah, I don't know. I It just makes me nervous. I don't know if Ariana would recognize me. I don't know what Hannah would do. I mean, Hannah could go from, she could, you know, put a smile on her face and be all happy, or she could like make a scene. I mean, it's just kind of unpredictable in that sense. And I don't know where she is in her journey right now. It would be uncomfortable for everyone. It sounds like. Yes. An unexpected encounter anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But a bridge I I hope to cross at some point. Looking back on all that has happened, would you have done anything differently? No. It's it's so hard to looking back. Like there was so much pain in all of it and so much just emotion, like the extremes of all the emotions throughout the whole process. And then Really, the grief of her leaving, I'm, that's been so hard to explain. So people 
will still see, come by and they're like, oh, I thought, didn't you have another one? And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I don't anymore. <laughs> but no, I don't think I would do anything different. Me and Jeremy have really um, grown close through this and our whole family as a whole, we're all very open with each other and vulnerable and very open with our emotions as a family, which is something that we were kind of forced into be going through this process. Everything, I mean, really just happens for a reason, truly. My faith is really important to me and I know God has been here through me through all of this and has really helped me and Jeremy grow and given us such a great like support group in our community here. And just kind of like a funny thing. Dates are funny, like how things line up, you know, or like coincidences. Me and my husband were actually getting baptized at the exact time that Ariana was being born. <laughs> exact same time, which is very just kind of interesting thinking back because I mean, without my faith, I don't think I would have had the grace to get through this. It's it's very easy or could be very easy to be extremely bitter and angry about all of this. And I, I mean, I still am at points and in, you know, different aspects of it, but it really had to just be like a selfless love for the child that doesn't matter what I think of it or what, you know. <laughs> yeah. If Hannah was on track and a, and a good mother and providing a good environment, you would want Ariana to stay with her anyway, right? Yes. Well, I yes, of course. Yeah, that would be great. There's yet proof to that that is true, but it's interesting the difference between being a traditional foster parent and what you the terminology which was new to me, a family placement. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for anyone considering fostering a family member? Mm, fostering a family member. I mean, if it's something that could be planned, just knowing going into it how taxing it is on every relationship in the extended family. And it just makes everything just makes everything super complicated. Roles are challenged in so many unique ways that you don't consider until you're in that position. But of course, if Anyone in a family ever needed to care for another family member? If you had the means, 100% do it. I mean, I mean, I, again, you would have to have, you have to have the child's interest at heart. Don't do it for the parent. You can't do it only if the parent does X, Y, and Z. Like it has to just truly be unconditional because you can't, you can't guarantee, you know, what, a person is going to do and the choices they're going to make. And if anything, they're likely going to disappoint you. And so if you went into it really like only wanting planning for it to be temporary and like specifically looking for an insight, that could be really, really difficult where we, I mean, we did go into it originally completely just as a temporary thing, but you see as it goes on that there's so much more to it. You know, there is a possibility that Hannah might hear this podcast. What would you like to say to her? Oh, gosh. The, ugh, there's so much love for Hannah in the family. And no matter, like, how many mistakes you make 
or, you know, all the bad choices that you've had, if just, just come humbly to people and we'll accept you for who you are. I mean, gosh, we would love to, to be supportive and be able to have a relationship. Yeah, you guys live close enough. You could, if, if you got along, you could have play dates with your kids and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, we could. All of my kids still talk about her. <laughs> I think Ariana, out of all of this, is like just a shining star. She, from the beginning, with how sick she was and like her physical ailments, she always defied all the odds. She got better quicker than anyone ever thought all of her like developmental delays. She crushed her uh, PT and OT so quickly. And she was always able to like overcome everything that you put in front of her. And she's such a, a strong willed <laughs> child. She knows what she wants. Um, You could, she, you know, has a lot of her mother in her and, you know, she is unique and she's not apologetic for who she is. And I think that just for her as a person, I think she has a great future coming and I am thankful that we were at least able to be there in those first formative years to really help her have a better future and healthy relationships and bonds with those. The show notes for this episode can be seen at whatwasthatlike.com slash 143. And you can see some family pictures there, as well as the full transcript of this episode. Earlier this week, I asked in the Facebook group if anyone has been involved with foster care, either as a foster parent or being in foster care yourself. If you're not in there already, I'd love to hear your comments on that too. You can join for free at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. I've got to tell you about an experience that I had recently that was pretty amazing. Earlier this month, I made a quick trip to New York City to meet with my ad agency, Glassbox Media, and I also met up with some podcaster friends. But on the day I arrived, which was a Tuesday, I had that afternoon free. So I decided to try something. As a backdrop to this, something you need to know about me is that I have a big heart for young people. More specifically, those who are part of the LGBTQ community. They often have a really hard time, and I see that happening, especially here in Florida, and I just hate that. And what really gets me is when they decide to work up the courage to come out to their parents, and they end up being rejected by their mom or their dad or both. Or they even get kicked out of the house. As a dad, I cannot imagine ever doing that to my kids, no matter what they told me. But this happens all the time. So here's what I did in New York City on a Tuesday afternoon. I went to Walgreens and got a poster board and a big Sharpie marker. I folded the poster board in half so it was a little easier to carry. And on each side, I wrote in big letters, free dad hugs. Then I took an Uber down to the lower part of Manhattan to Washington Square Park. This is a huge outdoor area in Greenwich Village, and it's a place where hundreds of people congregate just to hang out and enjoy the day. And it was a beautiful sunny afternoon. And to be honest, 
I was a little nervous because I really didn't know what to expect or how this would be perceived. I mean, I'm just a guy walking around holding this sign. How would people react to that? I for sure wasn't going to approach anyone to hug them. They would need to see the sign and approach me. So I got out of the Uber, I held my free dad hugs sign, and started walking around the park. I hadn't taken 10 steps when I heard a young man call out, Hey, I want a free dad hug. And he had a friend with him. So two hugs right off the bat. And I thought, man, this is really happening. Kept walking, and more people kept coming up to me for a hug. It was absolutely amazing. Sometimes they'd be a little hesitant, but I'd have my arms out ready for them, and they would just come right in. I asked them if they were doing okay, and I told them they are awesome, and that I hoped that they would have a great afternoon. And it was clear with some of these young people, some were gay, some were non-binary, it didn't really matter. They were just starving for someone to offer them a little bit of affection. I didn't keep track, but I was there for about an hour, and I guess I probably hugged about 50 people that afternoon. It was an incredible experience. I'm going back to New York this fall sometime, and you can bet I'm going to be back at that park with another sign. Now, for those of you who like to hear the stories with 911 calls, the newest Raw Audio episode is now live. This is Raw Audio 33. So now you have 33 episodes to binge when you sign up to support the show. And you get the regular What Was That Like episodes ad-free. In Raw Audio 33, you'll hear a man calling 911 because his house is on fire and he's inside. I have a fire in my house. There's a fire in your house? Yeah, there is. Okay, can you get out of the house? I don't think so, no. Okay, where are you located at in the house? In my bedroom. A young man calls 911 to turn himself in. What's the emergency there? Uh, I'd rather not, uh, I'd rather not say. Okay, well, if you're calling 911, it's my job to find out. So I need to know what the emergency uh, is. I think uh, it's uh, murder. What makes you think that? Because I uh, stabbed someone. And an elderly man calls 911 because he can't leave his house and he doesn't have any food. I like one fresh cabbage, uh, avocado, two bananas, and three peppers. What, what kind of peppers? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know diet stuff. I would, no, I mean, uh, two liters or the, the, the big bottle, whatever that is. Uh, and you want three of that? Three of those. You can hear those calls and what happened, along with all the other raw audio episodes, by signing up at whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and use the promo code plus to try it out for free. Or if you're an Apple listener, just click on try free at the top of the episode list. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. Hey, you know what time it is? It's listener story time. We have a listener story at the end of every episode, and if you have a story, we'd love to hear it. Anything that's interesting that happened to you that you can tell in about 5 to 10 minutes, just record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. 
I know you have a story like that because everyone does, and we want to hear it. In this one, a listener talks about what happened the night before her wedding day. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, Scott. First, I want to tell you I love your podcast. I went on maternity leave last January, and during nap time, I would binge all of your episodes. I learned of your podcast from This Is Actually Happening, and I am so glad that I did. I love the listener tales, and I just thought I'd never have anything to contribute, but then I remembered the night before my wedding, and... Ooh, it was quite a surprise for this type A personality girl. So let me just start by saying I am a very organized person in my regular life. So you can imagine that leading up to my wedding day, I was pretty on top of every little detail and trying to get ahead of anything that I could possibly foresee happening. It was a very normal night before the wedding. We had our rehearsal dinner at a local restaurant with just a few of our closest friends and family members. Dinner ended around 9, and I was determined to get back to my room, shower, hop into bed as soon as possible. I was obviously so excited for the following day and worried that I would not be able to sleep because of it. So I just wanted to get to bed as early as possible so that I could catch as many hours of sleep as I could. Um, Following tradition, the groom doesn't generally see the bride before the day of their wedding. So my now husband booked a separate room for the night before our wedding. The room I was going to be staying in was also connected to the presidential suite, which we also booked. So you know when you're in a hotel room with adjoining rooms, there's a door between them, just like that. So we booked this, we booked it this way so that in the morning I could get ready in there with my girls and also have all of my getting ready items close by, jewelry, makeup, all that stuff. When we got home from the restaurant, I kissed my family goodnight, already excited to see him in the morning, and I headed up to my room. So I showered, I blue dried my hair, and headed into bed. I climbed into the clean white sheets, already starting to sleepily think of my beautiful wedding day in just a few hours. However, I noticed a dim light coming through under the adjoining door into the presidential suite, and I like to sleep in total darkness, so this definitely was going to be keeping me up, and I did not want that. So I got out of bed, I went through the adjoining door to the presidential suite, and slam. (laughs) The door literally slammed behind me. I was not super concerned because, like I said, I booked both rooms, so obviously the door must be able to work both ways. I was wrong. It is locked from the inside of the presidential suite. So now here I am trapped in the presidential suite on the night before my wedding. And if that's where the story ended, you could definitely sympathize that that's a pretty crappy situation. But I am going to make it just one level worse because the truth was that I was going to go to sleep naked. (laughs) Meaning, I had left the comfort of my room to go into the presidential uh, suite to turn off that one light and had gotten trapped in there, completely naked and alone. I did not have my phone on me or my Apple Watch, so I could not call anyone. Immediately, my mind is reeling and I am trying to calm myself down (laughs) to think about how am I going to get out of this situation? I say this is a hotel room. There absolutely has to be a phone in this room. And 
to my great relief, there was just on the other side of the room. So I sprint over to the phone, looking to call the front desk and ask for them to send someone up to rescue me. I pick up the receiver and nothing. There is no ringtone. There is no busy tone. There is nothing. (laughs) I check the back of the phone. It is plugged in. I press a few numbers. It's just not working. Great. (laughs) I remember that one of our groomsmen and his girlfriend booked the opposite adjoining room to the presidential suite. And even though I knew in my heart that he and his girlfriend were absolutely downstairs with my fiance drinking at the bar, I started banging on their door, hoping for one of them to come to my rescue. But same as with the phone, I was met with nothing but silence. So now the panic is truly starting to set in. My mind is racing and I just keep saying to myself, this cannot be happening the night before my wedding. This absolutely cannot be happening. But I quickly stamped myself out of it and realized I absolutely could not just let this happen. I had to get back into my room. And in order to do so, I would have to leave this room, even though, again, I am completely naked. I started to look around the room. Um, The presidential suite is much more like an office space with just a few couches and tables and a mini bar. It did have a closet though. And I know that hotel rooms usually keep a few extra blankets inside of them, right? So I look inside and unbelievably, I find a nice, huge, cushy blanket. I wrap it around myself and I start to think of a plan. What exactly am I going to do? Am I going to go down to the lobby wrapped in a blanket? (laughs) Then I recalled that when I stepped out of the hotel elevator earlier that day, I saw that there was a decorative table in the elevator hallway with a phone on top of it. So that was my plan. I was going to exit the room, call for help, And I wedged a water bottle in the door because the last thing I needed was to get locked out of the presidential suite and stuck in the hallway with nothing but a blanket. So I ran to the table. To my relief, I found it and I didn't make it up. There really was a phone on top of a table. I picked up the receiver and nothing again. (laughs) The phone was plugged into the wall and it was not working. How could this be happening Again, now I am truly in full panic. I am all out of ideas, and my only possible next step would be to make the humiliating trip from my floor to the lobby in a literal hotel blanket and nothing else and ask them to open my door for me. Mere seconds after my defeat in realizing the phone did not work, tears literally streaming down my face, mourning the sleep I will not be getting, and already embarrassed by what I will have to do next, I hear, ding, and the elevator doors open. Our groomsman, Anthony, exited the elevator. His expression was first confused and then immediately concerned because why would he be finding his best friend's fiance in such an erratic state in the hallway of a hotel? I grabbed him and I told him what happened and he immediately ran back downstairs to get our card and let me back into my room. I was so, so, so thankful that he showed up when he did. And I still honestly can't believe that any of that happened or that he was there (laughs) to rescue me, thankfully, at that exact moment. What's even funnier is that the chaos did not end there. I woke up in the morning of our wedding day and all of my girls are in the room and my mother-in-law show up and my mom shows up and uh, the bellhop is in there and, you know, he's removing all of the dresses from the 
the bell hop, whatever that thing is that they carry. And I asked my mom, I was like, I see your dress. Where is my dress? And she nearly fainted when she realized that it's the one thing that she left at home. (laughs) So my dad came to the rescue and drove all the way home to get it and back to the hotel Later on, we had another lockout faux pas when the photographer took pictures in my room and then, like I did, got locked in the presidential suite. This time, I had my key to get back into the hotel room, so I exited the presidential suite, I walked around to the hotel room, I swiped my card, and beep, it was being declined. I called down to client services, they send up a master key, and beep, again, the master key was being declined. At this point, I'm just laughing because I'm like, this has got to be some sort of sick joke that somebody is playing on me. They literally had to call an engineer to come upstairs to let me back into my room, which, by the way, was vitally important because my wedding dress was in there, my wedding shoes, the jewelry, everything was in there. Thankfully, though, that was the end of all of the unplanned craziness. My then fiance and now husband went on to get married and it was without question the best day ever. I will never forget a moment of that day, including the chaos leading up to it, and I cherish it. I got to marry my best friend, surrounded by family and friends, and we danced the night away and had the best music and the best food. We have now been happily married for four years, almost four years. We have a beautiful one-year-old and a perfect little dog. Now all we do is look back and laugh at the uniqueness of our day and remember it very fondly. So just want to say thank you, Scott, for taking the time to listen to my story and to the brides and grooms out there planning a wedding. Just remember, you can only plan so much and to go with the flow. It always, always works itself out in the end. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.